Now, I'd like to move into chapter 7, and we've come now to the last chapter of this very remarkable little book. The subject that we've given chapter 7 is, Who is a God like unto thee in pardoning all iniquity because of who God is and what he does? You see, the pardon for sin that comes from God originates with him and not with man at all. Now we have here in the first nine verses, the prophet confesses that God is accurate in his complaint against Israel. And he's going to deal with specifics again, and we hope to get down through this particular section, and we'll just hit high points as we go along now. He begins in a very personal way, says, "'Woe is me!' And here is the prophet again, and I must call your attention to it, that he is very personal. And not only very personal, he is affected a great deal by his message, just as Jeremiah was. And he's overwhelmed by it. He's grieved by it. He found no delight in saying these things. And there's no fun today in me saying things that are rather pessimistic, and a great many people are going to disagree with me about our own nation today. I'll get several letters of rebuke that I'm not being patriotic, that I'm not showing a love for my country, and all that sort of thing. And that's what they said against these false prophets. But, friends, I love my country, I think, as much as the normal American loves his country. And I find no joy in saying this. I wish that I could make an announcement and say, friends, a great revival is breaking out across this land. And that would be good news, and that would be wonderful. And you just have to say, along with Micah, woe is me. And now I'm reading chapter 7, verse 1. For I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the great gleanings of the vintage, There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. Now, he looked about at the nation, and you must remember that the vine is the picture of this nation. And the contemporary of Micah, who was Isaiah, is the one who enlarged upon that. He set that forth, and he said very clearly that Israel is the vine, and the vine is Israel. Now, this prophet said, I've looked for some good cluster grapes, and there are none on the vine. And I desired the first ripe fruit, and there was none. The vine's not producing fruit. Now, he's going to deal with the specifics. Verse 2, the good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, not safe to walk on the streets of our country. Today, lawlessness abounds, and it does seem that the good man is perished, and yet there are a lot of wonderful people left in this nation of ours today, and I'm sure there were many godly people left, but he's speaking now generally of the good man. He's not today the ideal. He's not the one in the majority today. The good man is perished out of the earth. Verse 3, 
that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. They're not satisfied to do evil just in a minor way with one hand. They're going at it with both hands. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. Crookedness in government, you see. The place where there should be justice, it's nothing but injustice. You ought to expect the prince and the judge to rule justly and righteously. But no, that's not the picture. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire. Our literature, the clever writers today, and I look at television very candidly, keep up with what's going on in this world. When I was pastor, I was totally out of touch with what was happening because I didn't have time for it. Now, I take a little time and I'm finding out that the writers, everything that is presented today has a little hook in it. It's that little hook of liberalism. It's that little hook of immorality that's in it. That little hook that's ridiculing the things that we've considered sacred in this country, and it's all done in the name of the sacred cow of the freedom of the press and the freedom of speech, very little freedom of religion, unless it's weird and way out in left field somewhere and not that which is Bible-centered and Bible-anchored. We need today a bibliocentric thrust in this nation of ours. Now, will you notice, he goes on to say here, verse 4, "...the best of them is like a briar." You wouldn't want to pick a briar, would you? Get a sticker in your hand. "...the most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge." They're clever today. Sure, they're clever and sophisticated, but we have no geniuses writing today. Just clever boys. They write clever plays. They say clever things. They write clever articles, but no genius, nothing of depth, nothing actually that's worthwhile. I actually believe that this contemporary culture that we have, that God will do what he did for Israel in that day. He did it later on for the Greek culture and the Roman. He just wiped it off the face of the earth. Why preserve it? What's being done today that's eternal? that has eternal value. Oh, my friend, what a parallel there is here. How accurate Micah is. And then listen to him here. He says, "...the day of thy watchman and thy judgment cometh, now shall be their perplexity." You remember the Lord Jesus said the thing that would characterize the end of the age would be perplexity of nations. Confusion of nations. The biggest sign that we're near the end of the ages is not found in Israel. I don't know why so many of our Bible teachers today think if they can find something over there that that's the sign. Israel's not a sign. We're living in the church age today. But it's not that we're looking for a day. We need to look at a weather report. And that weather report is the sea and the waves roaring and the storm is breaking on the earth today. The nations, seething as they are, that is the picture that God's Word presents. And he says, "...trust not in a friend, put not confidence in a God, 
Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. Don't even trust your wife. A great many men can't do that either, by the way. What a picture this is. Don't trust a friend. Have you never been betrayed by a friend? What a picture of today. Now, may I say to you that he is telling out the difficulty these people were having, the sin. This lovely statement that was made back in the sixth chapter to do justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. They just weren't doing it. And they found out they couldn't do it. As we saw, Peter says, we were under the yoke of the law. Our forefathers, they didn't keep it. We can't keep it today. And yet there are a great many people go to church thinking they're saved by their own good works, that they're acceptable to God on what they do. And there is no hypocrisy like that kind of hypocrisy. Those people back yonder under the law might be excused, but you and I today with an open Bible are not excused at all, but we are only saved by the grace of God. Now, he begins to outline these awful sins that these people did. Verse 5, trust not in a friend, put not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. Now, this reveals something of the awful condition that existed in that day. And that's been true, I think, pretty much of the so-called civilizations of this world, that this is a big, mean world outside, and that you and I need to recognize that especially if we take a stand for God, why, the Lord Jesus made it very clear that the day would come. He said, and I'm going to turn to this passage, the 10th of Matthew, verse 34, "...think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword." And friends, as long as there's evil in the world, there will be a conflict and there will be a war between that which is of the flesh and that which is of the Spirit, between light and darkness, between good and evil. Every morning, I generally get up rather early. I do my studying at home early. And I get up while it is still dark. And my study is where I can look toward the east. And it's interesting to see how the darkness wrestles with the light till finally the sun comes bursting over the horizon and the darkness then vanishes. But there is a period there of dawn and it is a period where it would seem that the darkness is wrestling with the light. And the same thing takes place in the evening at the dusk when again darkness wants to take over. Now, there's that kind of a spiritual struggle going on in the world. And the Lord Jesus made that very clear. And he says, For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He won't be able to trust them. And he says here, Trust not in a friend, put not your confidence in a guide, 
Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom, from the very wife. And there's come to my attention over a period of years. It works both ways, of course, that a wife has not been able to trust her husband, and a husband has not been able to trust his wife. We live in a day when the word of man seems to carry less value than it did before. You can't believe today what you read. You can't believe today what you hear on radio or on television. It all should be tested by the child of God. I say to you, and I say it very candidly, test every program you listen to. Test this one, by the way. Test them all. You'll be wise if you do, because human nature, it's not to be trusted. And human nature will always try to fool Mother Nature and everything else, too. Now, will you notice, he goes on and says this in verse 6, "...for the Son dishonoreth the Father, the daughter riseth up against her mother." the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now, you see, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus said would come. And it had come in this day also. And when that sort of a situation arises, it's a day of decadence, a day of deterioration, a day of decay. And it's a day that's very dark, by the way. We live in a day like that. It's got so today that government is having to watch everything, and who in the world is going to watch government? Because they need watching. So that who can you trust? Who can you believe in today? We're living at a very sad time, actually, in the history of the world. And this reveals that it was that way in the day that Micah was grieving his heart out. Now, this is not something to boast of, something to rejoice in. It is something to deplore, and it's something that should grieve the heart. Now, he goes on in verse 7 here, "...therefore I will look unto the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me." Now, here is the confidence, and here is the assurance and the faith of this man. Now, he knows that God is going to hear him, and he knows that God will work this thing out. Now, it doesn't make any difference how dark it is today and how high the waves are roaring. And we saw that also last time when we called attention to the fact the Lord Jesus said there'd be distress of nations seeing waves roar. That's the nations of the world in great turmoil. And that these things ought not to disturb the child of God. They ought not to detour us because of the fact that men's hearts today are failing them for fear. They're looking after those things that are coming on the earth. And actually the powers of heaven today seem to be shaken. And he told us when all these things just begin to come to pass, and certainly we've seen the beginning, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. And Micah says, 
Therefore I look unto the Lord. I'll wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And these are days when God's children need to stay very close to God. We need to stay close to the Word of God. Now, let me come to verse 8 here. He says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Now, this here is a great principle that you find running through the Scripture also. And it is this, that though God's man may fall, God will raise him up. And then when we sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light for us. And today, God's people, again may I repeat it, we must stay close to the Word of God in difficult and dark days. Now, here in verse 9, on the behalf of his people, he makes a confession to God. And actually, as the New Schofield Bible has it, a submission to the Lord. And there is that sweet submission here also. We have to note that. And then, in spite of the darkness, there is on his lips a praise, as you can see, to God. He says to the enemy, don't you rejoice against me. God is going to lift me up, and then I will be able to rejoice. And though I sit in darkness, the Lord is going to be light unto me, and God will deliver him and deliver his people. Verse 9, I'll bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. Now, you see that he's making a public confession of the sins, actually, of the people, until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Now, what confidence this man has. He submits himself to the will of God. And I'm not sure but what that is the position or should be the position today of the children of God in this dark hour in the history of the world. What is it that we should do? Well, there's one thing for sure. God has permitted all these things to happen, and he's still in control. What should we do? We should submit ourselves to God. We should confess our sin and keep our accounts very close with God. Keep right paid up right to date. Make sure that we've settled every account with him. And this is the thing that is all important here. You notice that. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Why? Because I've sinned against him. We as a nation have sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned today. We've gone along with this affluent society and have accepted its comforts and We have rather smiled at the lack of integrity today that there is in public life, and we'd have shut our eyes to the gross immorality that's around us. It's time maybe some of us are confessing, because I've sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light. How lovely this is and I shall behold his righteousness. 
verse 10, "...then she that is mine enemy." And that word she that's been put in there is an insertion. I'd love to be able to ask the translators why they'd call the enemy a she here. I think it has in mind whoever the enemy might be. And at this time, as we'll find out down here in verse 12, it's Assyria, and there were other nations aligned with him so that it would be the enemies of God's people. Then let me read verse 10 with that in mind. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her who said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trampled down like the mire of the streets. In other words, God will ultimately triumph. But the thing that is tragic is that because of the sins of the people, why, they have to be judged. And the enemy asks the question, you've boasted of the fact that you serve God. Where is he? Why doesn't he help you? Why doesn't he deliver you? You've said that he would. Well, the enemy doesn't see the righteousness of God. The enemy doesn't see that God is dealing with them in a righteous way. He must judge them. And now will you notice verse 11, "...in the day that thy walls are to be built, in that day shall the decree be far removed." In other words, there was a period in the history of Israel when he put them out before the public, scattered them. They were sent down to Egypt to become a nation. Then God hedged them into that land, gave them the law, made them a peculiar people, and kept them from mingling with other folks. Then, because of their sin, they're sent into Babylonian captivity. Now, they had a ministry to the world, both at the time of their containment and then again when they were scattered throughout the world. They have been that kind of a witness. Now, will you notice, he goes on to say in verse 12, in that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities, from the fortress even to the river, from the sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. Assyria leading the attack against the people. And, of course, Assyria took the northern kingdom into captivity. Now, verse 13, "...notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell in it for the fruit of their doings." You see, the land and the people are pretty well tied together. Now, that land was not always desolate as it is today. You see, when the blessing of God comes upon them, it will also come upon that land, and it has not come upon them. Now, he speaks in a very wonderful way. Verse 14, "...feed thy people with thy rod." Now, back over in the sixth chapter in verse 9, the rod there was a rod of judgment. Now, here it's a rod of comfort. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And I think it simply means the staff of the shepherd. You see, the staff of the shepherd could be used in two ways. It could be used to protect and help the sheep. It could also be used to discipline the sheep. And it was used in that way. Therefore, feed thy flock with thy rod. God disciplines us, and he instructs us that way. The flock of thine heritage, who dwell solitarily in the forest, in the midst of Carmel, 
Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. These are great grazing lands up in the north and across the Jordan River. Now, we have here, beginning with verse 15 and going down through verse 17, actually God giving an answer to the prayer of the prophet. You'll recall that he came to God in beautiful submission and in confession of his sins and the sins of his people. The prophets always identified themselves with the people in the confession of sin. We do it a little differently. We like to confess the sin of the other fellow, but we try to leave ours out, and it's always nice to include our own. Now, verses 15, 16, and 17 actually is God's answer. And the question has always been just what does he have reference to here? And I think it's the consensus of most expositors that it looks on to the future. It looks on to the day when the Lord Jesus will come to set up his kingdom. Verse 15, "...according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things." That is, God led them out of Egypt by miracle. Now, he didn't bring them out of Babylon by miracle. In fact, no miracles are mentioned in connection with that although it was a wonderful thing. But nevertheless, it's the deliverance out of Egypt that was miraculous. Now he begins with that. God said that that will be the pattern of the day that I again bring you into the land. And we haven't had anything quite like that in the present return to the land. And therefore, God has not been the one that's moved them back into that land. I think we ought to recognize that. Now, verse 16, "...the nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf." In other words, when God begins again to move them back, the world will stand in amazement as the peoples round about them did. You remember that that was the confession of the harlot Rahab. She said, we have heard how God brought you across the Red Sea, how God has taken care of you. That word had gotten around, you see. Now in verse 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. In other words, these godless nations that have attempted to destroy them in that day when he comes, he'll come to deliver them. He waxes eloquent now, and he asks a question, and the question is this, and I'm going to read verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee, who pardoneth iniquity? and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. And because of who God is, then he will turn again. Verse 19, he will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. 
Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. In other words, God will make good. And in spite of their sin, that puts them out of the land temporarily. But it does not cancel out God's promises and God's covenants with these people any more than when a child of God sins. That doesn't mean he loses his salvation. It means he's going to the woodshed for a good whipping if he doesn't confess it and get straightened out. But if he'll come back to God, God will graciously pardon him. The prodigal son didn't get a whipping when he came home. He got his whipping in the far country. And you can be sure of one thing, God's child will never be able to get by with sin. We've seen that. Now let's come back to this marvelous statement that we have here. Who is a God like unto thee? Now, I want to make a very startling statement that there is something that God has not seen, but you see it every day. Now, you didn't know that you could see something that God cannot see, but that's a true statement, and it may sound rather impertinent for me to make it. It may sound irrelevant or irreverent and inappropriate. It may even sound to you flippant or facetious. It may sound to you like I'm making a parody or a pun, a riddle or a rhyme, maybe a trick or a treat here. But I want to assure you with as serious and a sober statement as I can make that this is a very sensible question, and it has a scriptural answer. And the prophet here asks the question, Who is a God like unto thee? Now, the very nature of the question suggests the answer is a very enigmatic subject. It's not the first time it's been asked, by the way. It was asked when Moses gave that wonderful song to Israel after they crossed the Red Sea. In Exodus 15:11. it says, "...who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders." May I say to you, they came out from Egypt, and there were many gods in Egypt. They were absolutely, if I may use the slang expression, They were lousy with idols down there. They had gods many and lords many. And the plagues of Egypt were leveled at the gods of Egypt. That was God's strategy in all of it. And at the end of the wilderness march, after 40 years, Moses again in Deuteronomy 33, verse 26, "...there is none like unto thee." God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, Destroy it. Now, may I say to you that it was asked again by Solomon over in 1 Kings 8, 23, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all thy heart. And the psalmist asks the question in Psalm 113, verse 5, Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high? 
who humbled himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Well, I won't answer this question. It's asked in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Kings, and Psalms, and I haven't given all the passages, but let's answer it. And it's suggested by our first statement here. God has not seen something that you see every day. Let me rephrase it like that. God has not seen what you see every day. Well, what is it that God has not seen? Well, God has not seen his equal. Who is a God like unto thee? God has never seen his equal, and you and I see our equal every day. Now, there are many ways in which God is alone, and only one actually is suggested here. But because this is such a profound question, and one that is so basic to this book that we've been studying, I want to look at it. Who is a God like unto our God? And may I say that the God of the Bible is the Creator, and the gods of the heathen, they are creatures. You remember Paul said this in the first chapter of Romans, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, and they started down. And what happened? They worshiped the creature rather than the Creator. And that was the thing that Isaiah said. And I'm not going to turn to that. We've already studied Isaiah, and he was a contemporary with Micah. Isaiah 44, 16 and 17, if you want the Scripture, and also verse 21. And you say, well, we don't have idols today. Well, this book has been dealing with a form of idolatry that they were guilty of, and we are too. Covetousness is idolatry. Secularism, materialism, that which you give yourself to is your God. That which takes your time and your money that's your God. Now, it can be pleasure. It can be sex. It can be making money. Whatever you are giving yourself to, friends, that's your God. And I don't care what church you belong to. That's your God, what you're giving yourself to. So the God of the Bible, he is the creator. What a tremendous thing is. Now, the important thing, therefore, is what Isaiah said. And you will recall that he did it with biting irony. You remember that he asked the question of these people who made idols. Isaiah 46, verse 5. God says, to whom will you liken me? He's the creator. You can't make a picture of him. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag, weigh silver in the balance, hire a goldsmith, and he maketh it a god, and they fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder, they carry him. Now, the supreme question is this, is your religion carrying you, or are you carrying it? That's the interesting thing. A great many people tell me, oh, I find Christian work is extremely boring. It's hard, it's difficult, it's bad. Well, if you're finding it that way, then I would suggest you give up your Sunday school class, quit singing in the choir, and don't be an officer in the church. 
church. This is something that God doesn't want you to do. He doesn't want you carrying him around. He wants to carry you. He wants to carry you, and he wants to carry me. Somebody said, why in the world don't you retire? You've been in the pastorate about 40 years and giving you time to radio. You want to know something? I'd rather do this and eat ice cream any day. I'd rather do this than go to a chicken dinner. May I say to you, friends, God's been carrying me a long time, and I think I've been a heavy load for him. And so God is unique. He's the creator. He carries us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's blasphemy to go beyond that. You can't go beyond him. From the vanishing point to the vanishing point, thou art God. From everlasting to everlasting, he's the creator. That's the way it all got started. Now, there's something else that God's different in. And that's important to this little book, and it's important to the 66 books of the Bible. The God of the Bible is holy and righteous. Now, the gods of the heathen, they're little, they're contemptible, they're base, they're ignoble, they're shabby, they're evil, they're mean, and they're ugly. Look at the images that you see today. Now, the gods of the Greeks on top of Mount Olympus, they were just projected men, enlarged men up there, blown up men, that's all. And what did they do? Well, they acted like overgrown children with overgrown faults and sins. They were spiteful and vengeful. The gods of the heathen just are not pretty, friends. What a reflection and slur upon God. Have you ever noticed how many times that you hear in the Scripture, the beauty of holiness? Oh, my friend, may I say to you, our God is beautiful. He's the beautiful one. And you remember he said to his people, you thought that I was altogether such a one as you are. He said, I'm not. You are sinful. You stoop to do low, mean things. I'm holy. I'm righteous. He says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. And God says he hates sin. He says he's angry with it. My, he gets wrought up over it, my friend. God hates sin. God's angry with it. And the wrath of God must be revealed against sin. That's the reason judgment has to come, friends. There's no escape from it. There's no way out. It can't be otherwise. It is something that is going to come to pass. The judgment of God. And again, I make application. This little book has real application to our own nation today. This country's been shaken in the past 10 years. One of the popular magazines today, national magazines, came out with 10 world-shaking events that have taken place in 10 years. Well, let's take the whole century and think of the things that have actually shaken this world that you and I live in. And actually, it's not the world I was born in. I never dreamed I would live to see what's taken place in my own day. 
And what is back of all of this? Well, our God is a holy God, and he reveals his anger against sin. He'll judge it. Now, I know a judgment day is coming in the future for sinners who won't accept Christ, but God is moving today, and I'm not sure. And I'm not going into any detail, but I'm not sure. But what we are experiencing, the anger of God, God makes it very clear. You see, a godless nation, a nation that rejects God, must bear the consequences. And we must recognize as individuals that you and I are sinners, and we must come to God. That's what it means to walk humbly with thy God. You don't come to him boasting of what you've done. You come to him confessing, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation, and you accept that salvation, and you know you couldn't go to heaven in your own righteousness. This is the thing that Anselm, one of the great thinkers of along about the 12th century, he said, I would rather go to hell without sin than go to heaven with sin. That's a great statement. That will shake you, my friend, in this day of weak-teed theology that we're having today, we need something strong like this. Now, let me mention the third thing, and that's in this passage here, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee who pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Now, here is where God is wonderfully and amazingly different. He has no equal here. There's no one even in his neighborhood. Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And what are some of the wonders that God does? Well, will you listen? In Exodus, the 33rd chapter, verse 18, And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God says, Moses, I'm going to do this for you, not because you are Moses and the leader of my people, but I'm doing this for you because I'm gracious. I do this to you because I show mercy. And I do it for everybody. Oh, all you have to do is to come and claim it from God, friends. He's just that good today. And there's none like him. Listen to him again in Exodus 34, 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. My friend, how wonderful he is. God does not clear the guilty. Sin is sin. From the moment it happens until the crack of doom, that is said by the hero in a play called The Great Divide years ago, and all the angels in heaven working overtime can't change it by a hair. But God forgives the sinner, and he's cleared him of all charges. God forgives because his holiness has been satisfied. 
His forgiveness is set forth by many figures of speech. It's like a debt that's been paid. You remember Isaiah said in Isaiah 43:25, I, even I, am he who blotteth out thy transgressions. And Peter said, Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. On his ledger, I'm in debt. The wages of sin is death. It's written there, and Adam all die. And may I say to you, his forgiveness is set forth in disease. He heals all your backsliding, and he binds up the brokenhearted. And sin is like a pollution, a contamination, and there is the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Son cleanses us from all sin. How wonderful our God is. Now, how does God forgive? And will you hear me now very carefully and very closely? You know, God is different. There's none like Him in forgiving, because His forgiveness is different than yours or mine. Now, when you step on my toe, you turn to me in a crowd and you say, pardon me, will you forgive me? And I say, sure. Of course, you ought to give me 50 cents to get me a shoe shine because you ruined my shoe shine. But I forgive you, you see. And how many times we say that to one another? I had a letter from a man who said he's been talking about me and he found out he's wrong and he asked me to forgive him. And I wrote him, told him, I said, don't ask me. You just get straight with the people you told it to in the Lord. That's all. I didn't know about it before. Human forgiveness is pretty easy to come by. But you know, God never forgives until the debt is paid. Never forgives until the debt is paid. And that's what Christ did on the cross. He redeemed us. He redeemed us. We're soul under sin. We have offended the holiness of God. We're in debt to him. We have a disease that God's not going to take into heaven, and that's the disease of sin. But Christ paid the debt, and Christ is the one that will forgive us. He healeth all our iniquities. And today, he cleanses us, and he makes us acceptable that we might go to heaven someday. Oh, my friend, may I say to you, Again, who is a God like unto thee? Who is a God like unto our God who pardoneth iniquity? And he passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Isn't he a wonderful God? And because of that, why he is going to restore Israel someday to the land, not because they're wonderful, but because he's wonderful. And friends, I'm going to heaven someday, and you say to me, well, you must think you're mighty good. No, I'm not. If you knew me like I know myself, you just turn the radio off. But please don't do it, because if I knew you like you know yourself, I wouldn't speak to you. I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for me. That's the reason I'm going. I'm going because the debt has been paid, and there's no God like my God today. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.